I'd suspect by now most of you are familiar with these home DNA kits. Um, and if you're not, what you do is you take a sample of your saliva, you send it into this uh, lab company, they will do a DNA analysis and then they'll send you back all kinds of information. Uh, and how they really got started uh, to begin with, I know for a lot of people was they wanted to be able to trace their ancestry in the origins of their family tree, and, and they do that. Uh, I don't know if you've seen some of those commercials. They can actually tell you where, what part of the world your family came from, and now they're getting to the point where they can get down to the region and even the town and, and, and village. It, it's pretty detailed and quite unique. One of the other uses for these home DNA kits has to do with medical purposes, and, and maybe you've heard of this too, where you'll send in that sample, and the genetic information they provide for you uh, will reveal maybe certain genetic weaknesses or tendencies that your family line has. And, and the purpose behind that is it's better to get ahead of some of these things and deal with them before uh, they become a problem. Um, uh, recently I was reading a, an interesting story about a young lady who was using it for that very purpose. Uh, and, and I've come to learn about these. There's a certain genetic marker uh, where, where certain gals will have um, this gene that will show that they're more likely to get breast cancer than not. And, and so she was very concerned about that because some people in her family history had had breast cancer. So she took one of these DNA tests and, and sent it in, got all the information back. Fortunately for her, she, she discovered she didn't have that genetic marker. So when it comes to breast cancer, um, um, she's probably not in one of those more uh, likely groups to get it. But she did learn something else um, that uh, completely blew her away because she has a sister and her sister took the, the test too. And when they compared results, they found out that they were only half sisters. They weren't actually full blood sisters. And, and I'm hearing more and more situations where when people innocently are using these kits, they're finding this out. Come to find out her mother had had an affair years earlier, never told her father, never told any of the family, and she was the daughter of that affair. And of course, you, you can imagine how heartbroken she was. Um, she felt betrayed. And the man she thought her father was, who was her father for all these years, come to realize uh, he wasn't her blood father, though she still viewed him as uh, her own personal father. But the, the truth is, she felt like much of her life uh, was a lie. It's, it's really kind of a heartbreaking story. So I wanted to, to ask this question this morning. Have you ever found out something like this? Have you ever discovered a truth that for your own t entire life you thought or believed something um, to be other than what it was? Uh, and if you ever did find something like that out, didn't you feel betrayed? Like, like it's one thing to be lied to, but when, it, when it's a big truth, uh, we feel just devastated. Let me take it one notch further. What if the one that's been lying to you for so very long has been the church. Things that you thought you knew about God, things that you believed about your faith and your relationship with God were absolutely false. Imagine the betrayal. This is part of our history. The year is 1525. A little known German monk has caused an international scandal. Europe is aflame with political and religious revolution and the monk is now an outlaw. At the heart of this conflict is a pair of simple ideas, ideas the monk pulled right out of scripture, which changed the world forever. Over 500 years ago, that ordinary German monk dismantled 1,500 years of Christian theology. Martin Luther wrote and preached many things, but all of them grew out of two extraordinary ideas. 
Ideas so simple a child could grasp them, but so scandalous they shook the foundations of the established religious order. Those ideas were the basis of a new church, a new view of God's world and our place in it. And yet somehow, those ideas have become lost, forgotten, or simply confused. These extraordinary claims Luther found in Scripture are still so scandalous that most Christians have a terribly difficult time believing them to be true and living their lives by them. Now, 500 years later, the revolution continues. God's people are recognizing the power of God's promises, the life-changing truth that once engulfed a continent and then became a mysterious secret. Martin Luther's Reformation is not finished. The truth has been uncovered once again. The secret is a secret no more. if you're thinking, oh good, it's Reformation Sunday, we get to bash the Roman Catholic Church. If that's what you're thinking, you're going to be disappointed that's not what this is about. Um, because every church has its flaws, every human institution does. Even the video itself, it was pretty well done, uh, but I, I bristle when I hear Luther's Reformation, or when I hear the term Lutheran Reformation. Both are false. It's the Protestant Reformation, because Luther was one of many reformers that God used about 500 years ago. And there have been many reformers throughout history that God has used to get us back to the truth. That's what today's lesson is about, this lesser-known character of the Bible, Josiah. Not one of the most famous kings, but maybe one of the most important kings. And though he began his reign as a very young boy, age 8, which we'll see in our text, he was wise beyond his years. As we work through this lesson today and we learn more about Josiah and discover the truths God used to bring out through Josiah, he leaves us with this nagging question, and it's the one that hopefully we can answer today. Does God really want reformation, or is what he really seeking is transformation? This is our lesson. Josiah was eight years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 31 years. His mother's name was Jedidah, daughter of Adiah. She was from Bozkath. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and walked in all the ways of his father David, not turning aside to the right or to the left. To fully appreciate how God used this one man in the history of the nation of Judah, what I'd like to do is actually kind of work a little bit backwards today. So let's go to the end of the first verse of our lesson. And what we see is the town, the village of the maternal origins for this king, Josiah, Bozkath. I don't know if you've ever heard of that name because it's pretty obscure. In fact, we don't even know where that village actually is. And there's only one other scriptural reference to that, and it's in the book of Joshua. And it does kind of give us some indication of where we might find it, at least the region. Apparently, it was fairly close to the much more well-known city of Lachish. That's talked about in other parts of scripture. Now, I don't know about you, but when I'm reading through my Bible on my own, I get to sections like these, and my mind starts to wander a little bit. And part of it, I think, is because it feels like when God gets into all of these little details, it's a lot of minutia. And I sometimes wonder, why did God 
feel it's so important to put in uh, information like this. I don't know where the place is at, that family's long gone. But I always have to stop myself and remind myself that the Holy Spirit doesn't waste his words. And in this very situation, telling us where the maternal side of Josiah's family came from is extremely important. It was the village of his grandfather and not of his mother. What it teaches us almost from the beginning is, is that God was not going to let Josiah be lost. He was going to put certain people into his life, like his mom and grandfather, who would certainly make him aware of, if not teach him in detail, about God and his promise of sending Messiah. Now, if you stop for a moment and ask the logical question, okay, so why is that important? Especially when God designed the family, as well as especially the culture of the nation of Judah, that that responsibility should fall on the father and not so much on the mother. Well, that's where we run into trouble, and that's why we're given those names. Because the father's side of Josiah's family tree is mostly rotten. What I've listed for you are the kings after the division of the two kingdoms, northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And those white arrows indicate the only kings throughout that entire history of the nation of Judah who you and I would consider to be good kings. All the rest of them were pretty much rotten, to the core. Case in point, if you're looking at the list, Josiah's father is a man by the name of Ammon. And if you look over to the next column, years of reign, he only reigned for two years. And the reason was is because his own people, his own counselors, his own confidence killed him because he was an idiot. And he was leading the nation of Judah into terrible places. And that's why Josiah became a king at such a young age, the age of eight, because his father was murdered. If we back up one generation to his paternal grandfather, Manasseh, well, he's quite literally one of the worst kings that Judah ever had, but more on that in just a minute. The point is, is that if it had been left to the normal structure of the father taking responsibility of making sure his family and of his children were well-educated in the promises of God, Josiah would have been on his way to hell, rather than being a true believer in what God had done for him and what God had, done, had promised to do for the entire world. Now, one of the reasons why I like to give you this chart, and I want you to just take a moment, Josiah, and unfortunately it's cut off a little bit. The next three kings are his sons, and you can see they ruled for various amounts of time. And Zedekiah, that's the one that's cut off. He was the last king of the nation of Judah, and then they went into the Babylonian captivity. Now, I want you to grasp where things are at and how desperately the nation of Judah needed a reformation, even more so than the Christian church at the time of Luther and the other reformers. So much had gone wrong, so much had gone bad, that these were the gods that the nation of Judah, the chosen people, the nation of Messiah, were now regularly worshiping, and the worship of the true God was all but lost. If it had not been for God's intervention in raising up the reform of Josiah, the kingdom of Judah might well have been wiped off the face of the earth, except God's heart wouldn't let him do that because he had made a promise to the world and he had made a promise to the nation of Judah that one day the Messiah would be born. If it had been left to his father and to his grandfather, that promise might very well not have found the light of day the way it does in the record of Josiah's reign and in the record and history of the nation of Judah. So you understand how desperately Judah needed not only reformation, but transformation. Let's dig in a little bit to his grandfather, Manasseh. 
Manasseh replaces Hezekiah as Judah's king, and he's the worst. He rebuilds the shrines Hezekiah tore down, erects altars to Baal and Asherah inside God's temple, burns his son on their altars, consults with necromancers, murders the innocent, and reverts Israel to a state worse than when they first entered the land. Fittingly, Manasseh's name means forgetful. Israel has forgotten the God who saved them and everything God saved them to be. So God forgets his previous grace and determines to exile Judah and end his relationship with her. But Manasseh's grandson, Josiah, is nothing like his grandfather. He's the only man in scripture said to fulfill God's law with his whole heart, soul, and might. He repairs the temple his grandfather desolated. And when he discovers a lost copy of God's word, he realizes the extent of Judah's sins and grieves. Beginning with the temple, Josiah undoes the idolatry of Judah and Israel's past. He dismantles the golden calves Jeroboam used to divide the kingdom and burns the bones of the false prophets and priests who facilitated the cult. The only bones he leaves undisturbed belong to the unnamed prophet who predicted his reign. And then, for the first time since Joshua reigned, Israel celebrates the Passover. Israel has never had a king like Josiah, but it's not enough. Unprecedented obedience by one king does not undo the atrocities of another, let alone centuries of violence and harm caused by Judah's forgetfulness. Josiah is unceremoniously killed in battle against Egypt. His son is crowned, but three months later, deposed. And Egypt installs a puppet king who's willing to extort his own people to pay the costs of another kingdom. Sometimes I don't think we realize how much biblical history plays into world history. At that time, Egypt is becoming a world power, and Judah becomes one of their pawns. And, and unfortunately, it brings Josiah's life to an end, and little by little, things simply deteriorate back to where they were. But before his life is taken from him, we hear the Lord not only talking about what he is able to do through one good man, but the way that Josiah is described for us as one of God's reformers is outstanding. The word is yashar, and, and it, it's a fairly common word, and it literally means that Josiah stayed on the path that God had chosen for him. The straight and narrow is probably how we would put it, but it actually means so much more. It, it's a way of describing people uh, very rarely in the Old Testament, much less the kings. And so maybe the best way to explain it is to use a New Testament equivalent. In the Greek, it would be the very same word that God used to describe his relationship with his own son, Jesus Christ. We use the English phrase, well-pleasing. This is my beloved son in whom I am well-pleased. That's the same way in which God describes Josiah, not simply because he chose him as a reformer, but he had changed Josiah in a way that maybe none of the other kings had been changed. And remember where this young king came from, his origins and how much he had against him, and yet the truth of God's word mattered to him. And it wasn't just a matter of having the truth. Josiah lived 
that truth. And I think sometimes that's where we have our struggles and challenges, even as a church and as individual Christians today, because we know what the truth is, but how do we put it into practice? How do we live it? See, the Lord himself speaks to that. And a lot of times I think we fall into the habit of, you know what, the truth should make our lives different. And, and that's right. But what we then proceed to do is change our lives on the outside and nothing happens differently on the inside. Don't get me wrong. God the Holy Spirit gifts us with faith and it does change us. And we are well on our way to heaven. And that's a truth that God used Luther and others to rediscover, that you didn't have to pay God back for your sins, that you didn't have to coax God into loving you. Uh, without those reformations, I, I think we'd all be on our way to hell. I don't know if there'd be a Christian church on earth today. And so we should give thanks to God for the people that he uses to rediscover the truth and, and to speak the truth. But the truth is, is that oftentimes because of our sinful natures, and because of our lack of transformation, well, look at what Jesus says to the religious leaders of his day. They followed the rules. They were obedient on the outside. To most people, they looked like they had it figured out. It looked like their religion was the right religion because outwardly, it looked pretty good. But when Jesus gets down to it, he quotes the prophet Isaiah, your hearts are far from me. Jesus points out the problem that oftentimes we can give him our head, we can give him our hands, but what God has always wanted from the beginning, from the moment he created us, is our hearts. He wants transformation. Now, remember the chart, and now you can see it a little bit better. Bit better. And I simply want to make the point that for as good as reformations are, they don't last. You think of Josiah's Reformation. He took them from the worst place they had ever been to quite literally the best place they had ever been. It's outstanding what he did, and yet within less than a generation, in 22 and a half years, it all fell apart. And Judah, because of their rebellion and their return to idolatry, God lets them go into the Babylonian captivity, where for 70 years, he disciplines them because he loves them, and he wants them to be the nation from which he would produce Messiah. He needed them to change, and in some ways they did. But were they transformed? The same can be asked of the Reformation we settle and celebrate today. Has anything really changed? How much of the Protestant church actually knows what the truth is anymore? How many non-Roman Catholic churches teach what the Bible actually says? And sometimes even in our own circles, we have to be honest about this, we're not perfect and we don't always get it right. And yet we pride ourselves on being teachers and livers of the truth. But I wonder, are we? There's something that I have been taught, and I'm going to suspect most of you were taught this too. And I'm not saying we've been lied to, but I think much like uh, for the first part of Josiah's life, it's something that we've been ignorant of. It's a truth that's vital to our faith that I'm not sure we've really actually talked much about, taught to the next generation, or made it really as important as God makes it. I was taught that once we're given the gift of faith through the Holy Spirit, that what we have to do is read God's word and learn it, and in fact, memorize it. And those are all good things. But the problem is, is I think we're going at it the wrong way. 
We think that first it needs to get into our head, and then slowly but surely it can matriculate to our hearts. I've even mouthed these words, but it's the old cliche, the longest distance known to sinful mankind is the 18 inches between his brain and his heart. And so there are a lot of people that know the truth, myself included, but there are a lot of days where that truth just doesn't really seem to matter. Does God want reformation, finding the truth, or does God want transformation, living the truth? In fact, I think we've been doing this backwards for much of the history of the Protestant church. Scripture clearly teaches us that God created us to follow our hearts. When God breathed life into Adam, one of the first fundamental things was Adam knew instinctively how much God loved him. It wasn't a head thing, it was a heart thing. And he created then the next person, his wife, and God wanted him to love her the same way that God loved Adam. He says, I want you to follow your heart. The problem is, is that when sin comes into this world, it messes with God's wiring, with God's design. And we're still following our hearts. The problem is, is our hearts are rotten and evil. And so we find ourselves being led away from God. And so the obvious question is, okay, I get it. So how do we live this truth? Remember the epistle lesson, Paul's letter to the Romans don't conform yourself any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed. And he says, by the renewing of your mind, you might go, aha, pastor, you got this all wrong. You see, when Paul says that, he's making an assumption, especially about the people that he's been working with and teaching. He's assuming that we already know how the renewal of the mind happens because scripture is filled with teaching us how that is supposed to happen. And maybe the single best example I can give you is that of King David after the prophet Nathan comes to him and convicts him of his sin of adultery and murder. And you read through Psalm 51, you will never hear David say, Lord, please reform my ways. Please change what my hands do. God, please don't let me look at things I'm not supposed to look at. What does David pray for? to have that renewal of his mind, he says, create in me a pure, a clean heart. He's asking God for a new heart so that he can have a new head. It's as simple as that. The heart must be right for the head and the hands to follow. Okay, good. So I'm going to go home today. How's that going to happen? Well, John, uh, God uses Josiah to bring together uh, at a, a beautiful meeting place the two most fundamental lessons in all of Scripture, the two most important truths that you or I could know for as long as we live on the face of this earth. Truth number one, God loves us. Truth number two, we were created to love God. What Josiah does in God, the Holy Spirit, through the life of Josiah is bring these two points together. The cross is reformation. It takes us back to the truth. It takes us back to the reality that God loves us with his whole heart. The empty tomb is transformation. That's where God empowers us to love God back for all of the love that he's shown to us. Look at what Paul says. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. See, people, Christians, lifelong Christians, wonder, why do I still struggle with sin? Scripture says I'm supposed to be dead to it. What's my problem? 
The problem is, is that I still have a sinful nature, and I was wired to follow my heart. So when that heart is evil and it wants what it wants, it leads me into sin. And oftentimes there's no stopping it because I was created to follow my heart. But when that heart has been touched by God's love, when the Holy Spirit gives me that new heart, it leads me in the exact direction God created me to go. You see, the cross is Christ in us. He makes us alive. He brings us back into relationship with God. The empty tomb is us in Christ. That's a strange phrase we don't talk much about. We talk about being in Christ, but Christ in us? That means that when that heart has been renewed, transformed, we live in the harmonious relationship that God always created us to live in. It's Christ in us that gives us life. It is the truth. It's us in Christ that helps us to live that life, to live the truth. I want you to understand something, and this is maybe the only way I can give you a real-life day-to-day application. And it has to do with, okay, I get it, transformation is important. God says that he wants that more than reformation. So what? Before I say anything else, I want you to understand what I'm about to say is not political. Um, And I'm very careful about that. Uh, It's none of my business who you're going to vote for in this midterm election. I trust that God has given you enough wisdom to vote according to God's will, however that looks or shapes out. That said, I want you to understand that this becomes a very practical lesson of transformation when it comes to things like these. Because I have this sneaky suspicion that there are a lot of American Christians who are looking forward to this midterm election, and if it does what everybody thinks it's going to do, it's going to get us back on track. And you might have feelings one way or another about that, but that's not really what this is about. A lot of people believe that our voting is what will determine our future. Again, don't misunderstand. I'm not downplaying our democracy or the important responsibility we have as citizens to vote our conscience and to vote for a better future for our children. What I am saying is that transformation means we don't think that humans control our future. Transformation means we trust that Jesus Christ is King of Kings. Because I don't need to be a prophet to tell you this, that even if everything goes the way you want it to go, that in a very short time, this reformation of America will not last. All you need to do is be a student of history to watch the cycles of change and how often and how quickly we sinful human beings run for the things that are not God. And you take God out of the equation and see what it's done to our culture, you can see how short-lived this little mini-reformation of America might be. I'm not trying to depress you. I'm simply trying to teach you the truth. The transformation means while God gives us responsibility in a role in this world to actually make good decisions about the days to come, a transformed heart looks to the Savior and says, whatever comes, Lord, I trust you know what you are doing, and you will keep your promise to use whatever happens, not only for my personal good, but for the blessing and benefit of mankind in the church specifically. See, I think sometimes when it comes to days like today, we highlight reformers, and we should give thanks to God for them. I don't want to downplay that in any single way, but human beings aren't the guardians of the truth. The Holy Spirit is, and he takes that truth, and he uses it to make a difference in our lives and in the lives of others. Maybe the best way to do this is to end the way I began, by going backwards. 
our lesson is just a summary of Josiah's life. But even at age eight, he's considered to be good in God's eyes. One of the best kings that Judah ever had. What oftentimes we fail to realize, it wasn't until 18 years later that Judah's reformation began. He was 26 years old, so he had gone 18 years before he decided it was time to make a change in that nation's history both for their spiritual benefit as well as for all of the other reasons why God had chosen them as his people. And God used Josiah to do things that actually made a difference, not just in the history of Judah, but for us as well. Not unlike the Protestant Reformation, the truth had all but been lost. And God used Josiah to not only have it rediscovered, but to share it so that it could actually make a difference in people's lives. Or maybe the best way to put it is, God's truth changed Josiah's heart. I hope and pray it does the same for us. King, the high priest has discovered an ancient book hidden in the temple and has delivered it unto me. It is the book of the law. That which was given by Moses. These many days you come to me and talk of silver and of the works of men. And yet today, the Lord my God has heard my prayers. And Shaphan the scribe read the book of the law unto the king. And the king heard the word of the Lord as if spoken for the first time. Josiah feared that the Lord's wrath would be kindled against Israel, so he desired that they should again hearken unto the word of God, as written in the book of the law. And I also heard the word of the Lord. I saw the book of the law with my own eyes and held it in my own arms. The king had been greatly moved by it, it also weighed upon me, and my heart began to soften. 
Josiah then gathered unto him all the elders of Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and he read in their ears all the words of the book of the law. O Lord, I and as many of these thy people that will stand with me do covenant this day to walk after thee and to keep thy commandments and thy statutes with all our hearts and all our souls to perform the words of the covenant that were written in this book. And on that day, the people of Judah returned to the Lord, the true God of Israel. And I returned with them. And according to the book of the law, Josiah took away all the abominations out of Israel and burned all the vessels that were made for Baal and for Molech without Jerusalem. And these things did Josiah do, that he might perform the words of the law which were written in the book that Hilkiah the priest found in the house of the Lord.